Our service this hour will be just a little bit longer than usual in order to better tie together the two hours in our children's ministry this morning. I would like to make note again of the numbers over there on the side of the wall for those who are, are the parents of small children. And I want you to know that when the numbers flash, it has nothing to do with the length of the sermon. We already have that agreement with those who control it. It has only to do with children who need help, nothing to do with parents who need help. Perhaps you've asked yourself the question, how can I know that God accepts me? How can I know that God accepts me? That is an important question. And it's one that is frequently asked, at least within the heart. How can I know that I am accepted by God? Such a question is frequent in our day because many of us, for a variety of reasons, have a hard time accepting ourselves. And we wonder whether we're accepted by others on a human level. And we reason this way, at least subconsciously, if I have a hard time accepting myself, and if I'm not sure other people who are human beings accept me, how can I know that the God of the universe, in all of his perfection, in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, truly, truly accepts me? I'd like for us to think about that as we turn to our text this morning, which is in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we think about the new you, who you are as a new creature in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I will begin reading in verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom. They were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have 
received mercy. Our understanding of who we are affects how we live. Dr. Stoll tied into this theme last week in his message, You Are the Light of the World. I'm especially interested in this series that we've entitled The New You and talking about those terms, those phrases that identify the new you collectively, not individually, but collectively as a group together. We have a personal salvation, but God has not saved us to an individualistic Christianity. We are saved individually, but we are then united to a group. We belong to a group, God's family, identified here. And so it's important for us to understand that. To realize that while we are personally saved, we are collectively identified. We talked last fall about the fact that we are members of the body. Collectively, we're something like a skeleton with muscle and tendon, etc. on it. And we each have a role to play. We have a common dependence upon one another. We talked last fall about the fact that we're ambassadors of Christ. We're like the Department of State for Heaven. We're the emissaries, the envoys of God in this world. We have a common assignment. And we talked about the fact that we are identified as the children of God. We're like a family. We're like brothers and sisters. We share a common ancestry. Now today, we see another title applied to us together. Together. And that is that we are a holy priesthood. Verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Some of us are very uncomfortable with the term priest because of our religious upbringing. Others of us are quite comfortable with it. God, in fact, calls us priests so that together we are a priesthood. What is a priest? Well, the writer of Hebrews says that a priest is one who stands before God on behalf of others. In addition to that, a priest is one who serves as an as a sort of intermediary between mankind and God. God says, you are a holy priesthood. It is interesting that nearly all religions in the world have some kind of a concept like this. They have priests or shamans or medicine men or mediators They have someone in their religious system who intercedes between the deity that they proclaim and the followers of that particular religion. This is not an uncommon concept. But so that we can understand what a holy priesthood is, as the Bible describes us, it's important for us to have some background biblically on the priesthood. 
The very first time that the word priest is used in the Bible is in the book of Beginnings in Genesis, the 14th chapter. You may recall the time when Abram delivered his nephew Lot and others from some, who, some kings who had taken them captive from the cities of the plain. And after the victory, Abram and the crew were marching along and they were met by a very mysterious man whose name was Melchizedek. He is described as the king of Salem, the city that came to be called Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He was the king of this ancient city of Jerusalem. Apparently, he led a group of people in the city of Jerusalem who had knowledge of the true creator God. This is in the same period of time, remember, when God had called Abram from idolatry over there in the Ur of the Chaldees. Back in Jerusalem, at the same time, there was this group of people whose leader, whose king, was Melchizedek, and who knew the true God. We must assume that they received that knowledge as it was passed down to them from generation to generation, from the sons of Noah. We know absolutely nothing about Melchizedek's background. His ancestry is not revealed to us. And it is for that reason, as well as some others, that he is called a type or an Old Testament narrative picture of Jesus Christ. And those of you familiar with the book of Hebrews understand that. So that's the first time that a priest appears in the Bible. It is a true man of God. And to him, Abraham offered tithes. And Melchizedek brought to Abram wine and bread for the strengthening of his troops. As we think further into the Old Testament, before the law was given to Moses, there really was no appointed class of people who were called priests. The heads of families, the patriarchs, were considered in that period of time to be the priests of their clans, their households. Abram was considered such. So was Noah, for that matter, and Jacob. And we see each of them building altars and offering sacrifices to God. Not because they were appointed as priests, but because they were the head of the family, and in that role they served as an intermediary, as a priest. But when the law was given and the covenant was established between God and the Jewish nation, there was designated a family within the nation to become the priests. That, of course, was the family of uh, Levi. They were generally the, the family, the descendants of Levi, one of the sons of Jacob, was to care for the tabernacle and all of the instruments uh, of the tabernacle. 
But then there was one specific family within the tribe of Levi that was given the responsibility of the priesthood. Does anyone know which family that was and who the first high priest was of Israel? Some of you are shaking your head. It was Aaron. And to Aaron was given the responsibility of being the first high priest. And then from his descendants, other high priests were appointed in succession. My point is that God established within the nation of Israel a certain class of priests. And when they got into the promised land, those people received no inheritance of land. They were given cities to dwell in. But the people brought food and uh, sacrifices and money and supported the priesthood. That was God's plan. But it's interesting to me to notice that God appointed the whole nation of Israel also to be a priesthood on behalf of the world. Turn back in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus for a moment and let's see how God said this. In Exodus chapter 19, God is here establishing his covenant. And he says in verse 5 of Exodus 19, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you, he's speaking now to the whole nation, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever seen that before? The whole nation was intended by God to be a kingdom of priests. A nation set apart. A people that belonged to God in some special way. What was God's intent in this? Well, it was that the people of Israel would be the mediators, as it were, of his grace to the nations of the world. They were, in some very real sense, to be a missionary people. In Genesis 12, God said to Abraham that he would make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. His descendants, the people of Israel, were intended by God to be the fulfillment of that. God said, you are mine in a very special sense. I possess you. You are a nation set apart, a holy nation, and you are a kingdom of priests. And God's intent was that they should then impart the knowledge of the true God to the whole world. Sadly, Israel failed in that responsibility. But I hope in noticing these words in Exodus 19, it rings a certain bell in your mind. Because these are very similar phrases to the ones that Peter chooses to write in 1 Peter 2 regarding us. A holy nation. A peculiar people. A royal priesthood. 
You were not a people, but now you are the people of God, he says. Now, he is not saying that we are the continuation of Israel in the Old Testament. But he is saying that we in this age, we who are a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, have a similar role, a similar function in the world as did Israel in the Old Testament. For we are appointed by God to be the mediators, as it were, of the knowledge of God. We are to take that to people. They are to understand the grace of God, God's love and compassion for all men through us. They are to receive the knowledge of the cross and what he has done that he might save men from us. He says, you are a holy priesthood. Well, let's think about the New Testament priesthood. We want to state what is obvious to most students of the Bible, and that is that the old priesthood under the law given to the Jewish people has been abolished. There is no need for it anymore. The ceremonies and the sacrifices that they were involved in have all been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those things were like shadows, says the writer of Hebrews. We have the real thing now, not merely a shadow. Those things have been set aside. They are no longer valid. They are no longer functioning. Because Jesus Christ has offered the once-for-all sacrifice for us. And then he has been raised from the dead and appointed as high priest. I'd like for you to look in the book of Hebrews with me to the second chapter. In verse 14, it reminds us that Jesus came and partook of our humanity so that he might suffer death on our behalf and render Satan powerless and deliver us from death. And then it says in verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren, Jesus did, in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. Now look over in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence. Let's talk a moment about the New Testament priesthood. There is today a high priest. And he is not appointed after the order or the descendants of Aaron. All of that was a part of the law and it's been set aside. The writer of Hebrews tells us that our high priest 
has been appointed after the order of whom? Right, Melchizedek. One who lives forever to intercede on behalf of his people. We have today a high priest. He does not function here in the world in that specific office. He does it in the true temple, the real one in heaven, in the presence of God the Father. But Peter tells us something that I think is really amazing. He says that we, and he uses the metaphor of a, of a house being built, or we might think of a temple being built. He says, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the living stone, and we also, as living stones, have been added to him, to the structure. And then he says, so that we might be a holy priesthood. Here's his point. There is a high priest in heaven who intercedes on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, in this world, serve with him in the priesthood. We have been added to the priesthood. We are a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. You say, well, what does all that mean? Well, it means more than we can talk about just this morning. So we're going to continue this next week. But I want you to think for just a moment about the privilege of being a priest. Let's go back to the Old Testament for a moment. To the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron. The people of Israel were not permitted in the area of the tabernacle. Is that right? That's true. It was a sanctified area. They encamped around it in a certain order that God prescribed, as a matter of fact. But they could not enter into the, the tabernacle compound itself. Only the priests were allowed that kind of access to the presence of God. Only the priests could enter into that tabernacle and see the beauty of it, which we talked about last month briefly in one of our services. And only the high priest was permitted to go behind that veil you remember we talked about? Only the high priest could go behind that veil into the very presence of God where he dwelt over that mercy seat at the Ark of the Covenant. And he could only do that once a year. Once a year. You see, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the citizens of Israel, did not have direct access to God. They had to hear about God through others. The high priest could describe to them the glory of the inner sanctuary. They couldn't see it. It was off limits. It was forbidden to them. Only the priests could tell them of the beauty of the holy place. That table made of gold, overlaid wood, 
and the, the lampstand of gold, and the altar of incense. Only the priest could see that. The people could not see that. The access to God was limited, but it was the privilege of the priests to go into God's presence. Dear people, that is the privilege that God gives to you and me. I'd like you to open your Bible to uh, another chapter in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place. That is the place that most of the people of Israel could never see. They could never enter. The place where God was, the holy place. The writer of Hebrews says, brethren, we may enter the holy place and not merely take a peek not just tiptoe into it, but with confidence we may come to the holy place. Why? He says, through the blood of Jesus. That sacrifice has been offered for us. He calls it a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. The writer is drawing a certain parallel between that veil in the tabernacle and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says that the veil has been torn, he's talking about the body of Jesus that was sacrificed, crucified for us. And he says, through that violent death, God tore back the veil so that now all of God's people may come as priests into the very presence of God. That's what he's saying. Therefore, the writer of Ephesians tells us that we have access to God. Access to God. Access is uh, the right to enter through the introduction of someone else. It's the right to enter because someone else has paved the way for you. Let's suppose that uh, you wanted to go down to the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks. Well, good luck if you don't have a ticket. You're not going to get in unless you have a lot of money. It's a very limited access occasion. You've got to have one of those tickets. But now let's just suppose that... Uh, you entered one of these many drawings they have around for the tickets. You stop at a gas station. You fill out one of those little cards. You drop it in the box. And you get a phone call next week. And they say to you, we're happy to inform you that your name has been drawn to win a prize. You have been given two tickets to the Super Bowl. You'd be pretty excited about that if you like football. Some of you might like to go out and hawk them and take the money and do something else, more interesting. You say, well, that'll never happen to me. 
Well, I've only won one drawing in my life, and it was last summer in Shoreview. They have a little celebration of some sort at the Shoreview Mall. And uh, all of the businesses there were giving away uh, some kind of prize. So I decided, well, I'll drop my name in there. I've never won one of these things. I wasn't worried about it. I won something. It was uh, a gift certificate to the bar at Roseville at the mall. That's just my luck. Well, fortunately, they have a restaurant there, too. But uh, let's just suppose that you got those tickets. And you were able to enter into the Super Bowl. You've got to show the tickets because they give you access. My point this morning is this, that God has given us access to come right into his presence. No more are there veils. No more is there darkness and the sound of terrifying trumpets and earthquakes in the presence of God. God says, I open the way. Come! And Peter says, coming to him, you're made like a living stone and you're added to the living stone, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, so that you are now a royal priesthood and you have the privilege to come to God directly at any time. You say, well, how do we do that? By Do we have to uh, come forward in church? Uh, Do we have to go to a certain room to pray? Isn't it a marvelous thing that just by the thought of your mind, being so directed, you can enter into the presence of God and talk with Him? I was with some pastors recently who were bemoaning the fact that no longer can churches remain open during the day because of vandalism and crime and so on. So the people might come and pray. Well, that is sad, and I recognize that there is something about getting alone. And in the quietness of a large sanctuary, sometimes uh, we, we seem to sense the presence of God. But the presence of God is no more real in that moment than when you're driving down the freeway and you lift your heart to God in prayer. The presence of God is just as real in that instant as if you were at church all by yourself, kneeling at an altar praying. Because you are a priest. Now we're here in the 10th chapter of Hebrews. Let's go ahead and look at the verses that tell us that we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 21. We have a great high priest, Jesus Christ. And we serve under him. So he says, and now in verses 22 to 25, we come to a little garden. And here we have what J. Vernon McGee called the lettuce patch. He says, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Three responsibilities that come to us because we are a royal priesthood. 
that fall out to us because of our privileges in the presence of God. He says, first of all, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. How can I know that I'm accepted by God? Because, my friend, of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. That's why. You can know that God receives you, not because of who you are and the good things you've done, but because of His Son and what His Son has done for you. You can know today that God accepts you when you come to Him. Oh, it's terribly possible to do what else Peter said, to reject him. And referring to the Jewish nation as a whole, he says, they rejected the chief cornerstone, and therefore that stone became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to them. And they are damned. They're doomed. And all who reject him are thus doomed. But we may come to him and know because we come we are accepted. And he says that we can draw near with full assurance. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's inward. And our bodies washed with pure water. Now he's thinking about what some of the ceremonies were in the Old Testament priesthood. But he says to us, that we need an inward cleansing which is signified by the outward washing of baptism. That's what he's saying. Not the baptism saves, but it is an outward evidence of that internal cleansing of the conscience. Then he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Do you feel like your knees are weak today in the trials of your life? Listen, we have a high priest who stands in God's presence on our behalf. And we can come through him directly to God ourselves. And we do not have to lose hope. You may feel very disappointed in the circumstances that have fallen out to you in recent weeks or days. The writer of Hebrews says, don't give up hope. He says, hold fast the confession of your hope. He says, God is promised, and God is going to keep his promises. He can be relied on. And he says, let us consider, verse 24, how to provoke one another. Some of us are very good at that. In fact, the word that he uses here usually has a negative connotation, just like we think of provoking somebody. So it's all the more startling that he uses that word in a positive context. When he says, let's provoke... Or stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to godly living. We're a priesthood together. So let's consider how we can encourage one another. And he says specifically, not forsaking our own assembling together. You see, we're not saved to be by ourselves off in a corner somewhere. We're saved to be a part, to be identified with the people of God. And so he says, be faithful in coming together to the assembly of God's people. Encouraging one another. And he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is that? Well, 
It seems to me in the context of the whole book, it's the day of judgment. Saying there is a day coming when we are going to give account to God. And so he says, in the light of our privileges, including the fact that we can come directly to God, that we have access to him, that we're accepted by him, always, always. There are some Christians who have the idea that being accepted by God means getting on a treadmill and running as fast as you can. Have you ever been on a treadmill? How much distance did you cover? You don't go very far. You'll work yourself flat to death. I've been on one twice in my life, and there was a cardiologist in the room, and I was glad he was there. But you don't get very far in a treadmill. But some of us look at the Christian life that way. Oh, I've got to try hard. Got to do it. The Christian life might be better compared to those people movers like out at the airport. You get on those things and you just move right along. You don't even have to walk. But you can walk and when you do, there you go. Very little effort. That's really what the Christian life is like. And he says there's a day coming when we're going to give account to God. We have responsibilities because of who we are in this world. The day is coming. Therefore, be faithful. Be faithful. Live out the priesthood. Be who, you, who God has called you to be. So that when that day comes, we can give a good account. Much more to say, but let's bow together. We'll take it up next week as we talk more about the priesthood, this holy priesthood that God's called us to be. But, oh, dear, dear friend, you who are here this morning without Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you understand that he alone is the living stone? He is the rock. He is the cornerstone. And your need is to come to him to believe on him today to be saved. If you've never done that, right where you're seated, would you lift your heart to God and say, Oh God, I understand that Jesus Christ suffered and died for my sin. And that he lives for me. And I come to you acknowledging my sinfulness and receive from you cleansing and the gift of eternal life. Come into my life. Be my Savior and Lord. Dear friend, in coming to him, you too will be added to the house, to the holy priesthood. Oh, that you would come today and delay no longer. And my Christian friend, in the light of who you are as a holy priest unto God, are you living out the reality of that in the world? You may just be flat worn out today because you've been on the treadmill and your need is to get off the treadmill and get on the people mover is to let God carry you. Let God fulfill in you his desires. Cooperate with God. Don't do it yourself. Father, I'm talking to some weary Christians this morning, I'm sure who are just worn out, though they've given it everything they've got. Because somehow they've misunderstood what the Christian life is. I pray that you will nudge them 
to that place where they will understand that the Christian life is simply living in the joy of your presence and living out who you've called us to be. Lord, use us this week. Just as you've called Israel to be the mediators of your grace to the world, you've called us to do that. So this week, as we carry the truth out and we share the Savior with others, may we do that effectively, full of the Holy Spirit, with fruitfulness. And as these magazines are distributed and we invite people to the picnic later this month and as we witness in our office and we share in our neighborhoods and take every opportunity we have to share the message, we pray that you will bless the seed sown and bring forth fruit that people may come to the living stone and be added. Thank you, Father, for this time together this morning, for the opportunity to worship you and to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.